Well, good morning. If you are new here, my name is Ryan and I am your pastor. Two weeks ago, we, I was preaching in a sermon that I do not wear flip-flops on Sunday and somebody said, why don't you wear flip-flops on Sunday? We're in Florida. And I took that message to heart and I wore flip-flops for the first time on a Sunday. Yes. Don't judge my toes. Um, and on the flip side, it just feels so weird, you guys. I can't do it. My favorite, one of my favorite things about Sunday is to wear socks because it's the only day of the week that I wear socks. So, and I have quite the selection of socks in my house. I've got polka dot pink socks, skull and crossbones socks. Those are my favorite. Every time I wear something with skull and crossbones, it's inevitable that somebody from a more traditional denomination is like, why do you wear skull and crossbones? And I always turn it right back around and say, why do you wear skull and crossbones? And they look down. They say, I don't wear one. And I say, you wear one in your face. (laughs) And they don't like that. But anyway, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you are visiting or if you are new, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes where we read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little because the Bible can teach us the way of life, the way of living toward Jesus, in Jesus, all about Jesus. That is the mission of the chapel, that we would make all of our lives all about Jesus, that we would love God and love others, empowered by his Holy Spirit. So before we get into the word and the message today, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this book. And I thank you specifically for these verses this morning, for these six verses that that challenged me in my preparation, that that sent me down memory lane. God, I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would change our lives, that you would make us people who are prone to seeing when our lives are catching on fire, that you would make us wise. God, open your word to us. Strengthen us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So just by show of hands, who in here is a grandpa? Anyone here a grandpa? Okay, I'm really looking forward to being a grandpa um, because right now I'm just a dad. And I know dad, I don't want to say just a dad, but I'm looking forward to the season of life where I can take my grandkids and right before they go home, I'm just going to shove candy corn in their face, pop a Red Bull in, and send them home to their parents. (laughs) And there's no like spanking, I mean not spanking, what do they call it nowadays? Discipline, time out. I don't know what they do here in the South. There's no spoons. It's just candy corn, Red Bull, no discipline. Be wild, send you home to your parents. And then I'm looking forward to like post-grandpa phase of life when I get to, um, to leech off my children and drink coffee on their back porch and make them drive me around. I'm, I'm just, I know some of you guys are like, well, Ryan, it's a little morbid, but today you're going to see why. Because I, I have this fascination with this season of life where we finally get to the point where we have a little bit more wisdom than we had in our 20s and 30s and 40s. And each decade, I think we hopefully incrementally get a little bit more, some of us less than others on the increment scale. But Solomon today is going to sit us down, and as we transition to chapter 7, he's going to go into grandpa mode. He's going to go into full-blown grandpa, sit down, give you my wisdom mode. And if you've never had a grandpa, you, you may not know what that's like. I, I kind of had grandpas in my life. One grandpa was on the other side of the country from me growing up, and the other grandpa was my dad's, and we weren't super close all of my life. So I have a little bit of this like, gap where I fantasize, like, oh, what would it be like to just have a grandpa like Solomon? Because there's been this conversation going around of who would you want to meet when you go to heaven? So the youth pastor and I have been having that conversation, a few other people. And then I thought, wait a second, I don't have to wait until heaven. I've got men in the Bible who in their older years gave me their words. So today we're sitting down with Grandpa Solomon. And if you are unfamiliar with the book of Ecclesiastes, just for a little bit of introduction, Solomon was the son of David, the guy with the giant, the sling, the head thing. 
right? Now Solomon has gotten a massive amount of wisdom, more wisdom than any of us will ever have. He's had massive amounts of wealth, more wealth than any of us will ever have. It doesn't matter if you're one of Bill Gates' uh, children, you're not going to receive as much as Solomon had. He had parties unlike the world has ever seen, partying with 20,000 people day after day after day, and, and where some of us think, well, man, I party. He's like, no, 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 I partay is what Solomon would say. Solomon had more um, sexual relations than any of us would, would ever fathom or I think want to have. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines that we know about. So he did not want for anything. He lived the pleasure experiment to the extreme. Where we think it's rad to go to Total Wine and fill up just the front section of your cart with bottles of wine, Solomon saw vineyards and said, I'm wiping these out. Sorry, if you're new and you're Baptist, you're gonna have to get used to me. Okay, I mean non-alcoholic wine. That's all they drank back then. Solomon ran this whole experiment, and now he's old. And now he's going to sit us down. And you have to remember, he built this massive house. And he says, hey, I want you to come over for a cup of coffee, Grandpa Solomon. And you go to his house, and the doors are just massive, right? Because he's got this palace, and they, they creak open. He's got slaves outside. Come sit down on my couch for a cup of coffee. You go in, just like every grandpa's house, everything's covered in plastic. It's just crazy in there. He gives you a cup of coffee. No cream, no sugar, doesn't even ask. He's like, you better drink this. And you're like, okay, Grandpa Solomon. It's tar. You put the spoon in, just stays up. And he's like, okay, I'm giving you my wisdom now. So here's where we are, sitting down with Grandpa Solomon. And, he, and he's just going to kind of do this thing where he's like, going to tell us some wisdom. And then it, you can almost feel his brain drift. And he goes, and another thing. That's where we are. Are you ready? <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Okay, let's, we're going to read a little stuff. Read and talk, read and talk. So first, he starts out with this thing. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, it's, it's funnier in the Hebrew because the word name and the word ointment are like cologne. They're only one letter off. So it's like a play on words. So it's almost like he's saying, like, a good name is better than a good name. And it means ointment, cologne. And, and what he's getting at is, is this, that we need to think about. Solomon wants us to work on our character. He wants us to be the type of people who have a good name rather than just a good external fragrance. Because we all know in our culture that it is uh, marketed to us, get better externally. The cologne, get better cologne, get better bodies. I was driving on my way here and there was a gym that says five years strong. I was like, yeah, man, people want me to work out. No, thank you. I was talking to someone this morning. They run every morning at 6 a.m. Now, I know that in Florida, that's like the only appropriate hour to run if you don't want to get drowned in your own sweat. But uh, I just couldn't imagine doing that. And, and I think it's good. Don't hear me wrong. You should run. You should take care of yourself. You should eat like spinach and kale, even though kale just tastes like dirty, dirty lettuce. You should do those things. But if you do them at the expense of your character, at the expense of your name, Solomon wants to back us up because now he's Solomon, Grandpa. Now Solomon is saying, look, it's not about your external appearance. Despite what everyone in our culture is telling us, it's not about our external appearance. It's not about how good we can look. It's not about how clean we can be. And please hear me. This is a temptation for, I believe, all of us. Even the most unkept person in this room, whoever you are, it's a temptation. I had my hair cut recently um, because we have two hairstylists here. And they told me a few weeks ago they couldn't even listen to my sermon because my hair was out of control. 
So I had my wife kind of fade it up with, with um, Bree, Jared's wife. She's a hairdresser. She's like, no, do this, try this. And then in the very end, um, she does this thing called lining me up. Now, I'm not familiar with all the hair lingo, but all I knew that happened was I went from looking like an almost homeless person to a normal person again, and I was pumped for that. Now, I, I was like feeling all good. I'm like, oh, look at this. My beard's looking good. And I know you guys are kind of laughing. I'm using the word beard generously because I'm half Asian, and this is the best four weeks my face can muster, okay? And Solomon's whispering the whole week, your name, it, it's a good name. It doesn't matter if you smell good, look good, if you have a six-pack, 20-pack, 10-pack. It doesn't matter if when people hear your name, they roll their eyes because you're a fool. It doesn't matter. And, and as I've gotten older, it's been crazy how things shift, right? As you get older, you become less consumed with the external things and more consumed with, man, what am I going to be like when I'm 50, 60, 70? Who can I put around my life that will help shape my character rather than just my external appearances? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what my cologne smells like. At the end of the day, gravity wins. It doesn't matter how much fat I have taken out of my thighs and put in my cheeks. And gravity wins. But a good name is what lasts. And Solomon is sipping that black coffee. And he's just hitting it right on the nose. Hey, Where's your character, Sonny? And I, I'm trying to s swallow it down because it's like Folgers, three days old, reheated in the Israel crockpot stove thing. <laughs> okay, I need, a, I need a better name. And then he goes right to the heart of something that I love, and some of you have heard me talk about this before. And he goes, better name, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. What? Like, this guy is Debbie Downer. This guy is... Need, needing some counseling. We need to get grandpa put somewhere where he's got care for him. Because he's saying, hey, worry about your character, and that's good advice. Don't worry about your exterior, that's good advice. You know what? It's better on the day you die than the day you're born. What? Like, that's at the point where you take your grandpa to a doctor, right? Let's be honest. If your grandpa goes around like, oh, I just can't wait till I die. Well, we can arrange that in some states, grandpa. Like, I don't know. And, and then all of a sudden, I started thinking about it. I was like, wait a second. It is so weird how life works this way. Because when, when a child is born, there's all of this hope and expectation, and there's all of this opportunity. When a child is born, all I've seen with all of my kids is opportunity. They pop out of the womb. I hold them up like Mufasa. I'm like, ah! And, and the light comes down in the hospital, and then the nurse takes them from me and does whatever they're going to do. But I, I look at them, I think, man, what are you going to be? There's so much opportunity, and I'm so excited about it. I mean, you should see me when I'm in a hospital, or maybe you shouldn't see me. The last time that uh, Savannah was being born, the doctor was running late, so I literally started pilfering through all of the drawers, and I had the nurses. By this end game, the nurses were all on my team. They suited me up in a full-on surgical suit. Like, they put the gloves on, the mask on. I was there in flip-flops in the hospital, which is a bad combination when babies are being born, but I was ready. And, uh, and I was like, babe, you can do it. Just push, just push. And she's like, the doctor's not here. I don't care. Just push. I can do this. I had no training at all. And that baby was born. I thought, wow, what, what is she going to be? Now, there's all the opportunity, and, and birth is a great thing, but what Solomon, what Grandpa Solomon wants us to get at, he wants us to start thinking, hey, what is the end game? 
What are you aiming towards? Because if you just land people with opportunity and there's no purpose, there's no direction, what's going to happen is that they're going to be going like this, rabbit trailing their whole life, and they're going to get to the end and say, what have I done? What have I accomplished? Or who am I and what is life really about now that I'm here at the gates and the finish line is right in front of me? Solomon wants us to begin thinking with the end in mind. He wants us to begin looking ahead to say, okay, what is it going to be like at our death versus at our birth? Because we can't look back to our birth. After you're born, it's, it's all done. You don't get to look back and say, ah, if only when I was four months old, I did this instead. But right now, from this day forward, wherever you are on the spectrum, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, wherever you are, you can say, how am I going to live with the end game in mind? And here, here's just a couple things I want us to think about. And I've talked a little bit about this before. Um, what's the end game for your marriage? Like, is the goal of your marriage to raise up and encourage and love your spouse in such a way? And I joked about this with the men uh, uh, recently at Band of Brothers or at my small group. I said, are our wives going to end their life saying, Man, every year of our marriage, my husband reminded me more and more of Jesus. He just became so much more kind and loving and sacrificial that every year on my anniversary, I thought, wow, he's looking less and less like that goofball I married and more like Jesus. He's, he's making it. I can't believe God is doing this in his heart. Or, or with your children. Are you going to raise them up just so they can go to college or play a sport? Because I'll tell you what, I love sports growing up, but I don't know... I don't know in my heart where this fits. I don't know where the line is drawn between like, I want my kids to have fun and learn teamwork, and then the other line, which is the crazy parent on the sidelines who's more involved in the game than the referees and the players. We all know who we're talking about, right? We've seen this guy, like softball Sam, the dad. You know, he's like trying to get his son who's pitching to strike out a seven-year-old to demoralize that poor seven-year-old forever. Strike him out, son, he's a chomp. That little seven-year-old's a chomp. Dude, he's seven. But, but we've seen it. Now, in the end in mind, what, what good will it be if my son Jackson, who's going to be tall like me and athletic like me and better looking than me, hopefully, because he got his mom's genes also. But if he goes to play sports somewhere, NBA, NFL, gets 10 concussions, gets retired out, like, yeah, it's a good heyday. But, but at the end of it all, as a dad, I want to make sure that I'm saying, okay, what's the end game with my kids? That they would love Jesus, that they would serve their communities, that they would reach into people's lives and bring love in a way that nobody's experienced, that they would surpass me in my understanding of the Bible, that they would become greater prayer warriors than I could ever imagine being. So that's my end game, so I start building toward that. So I pray with them every night, even when I'm too tired to want to pray with them. Last night I said, go to bed, I don't want to go upstairs. And then they said, Daddy, but we love to pray with you. I'm like, oh. Tug the heartstring. Jeez, fine, I'll do it, Jesus. And I went and prayed with them because I'm, I'm plotting toward the end game. Same with our, our marriages. Same with our work. If the end game of your work is just to accumulate more and 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 more, and there's never an end game, there's never a goal that you've set, like I want to have this money to be this generous to help these people to love this community, then, then it just becomes this endless cycle. And eventually, gerbils get tired on the wheel. Sometimes we don't think about the end game with our friendships. Our friendships just become something that are about having fun, having a good time, and, and we're never taking the next step of saying, how can I pour into a friend in such a way that every time we hang out, they think, wow, that person would really give their all for me. That person would literally die for me. 
Okay, so here we go, verse 2. We're moving a little slow. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let's keep on reading verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Nobody likes that line. For by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So here's what he's going at. You guys, don't waste hard times. If I'm going to sum up that line, it's don't waste times of mourning. Don't waste times of sadness. A wise person sees difficult times, and he says, I'm going to use this. I'm going to sit in this, knowing that in the good times, I will grow. Knowing that in the good times, my character will be changed. Knowing that in the, good time, in the bad times, in the morning times, the hard times, it's then that God will shape me and mold me. Now, how many of us love going through difficult, torture, torturous, tormenting times? Anybody love that? It's like nobody's a sadomasochist, right? Like, no. So no one's like, oh, I love it when I wake up and my front tire's flat. Oh, I love going to work and all the people who hate me were scheduled on the same shift. Oh, I love it when after my flat tire and my hatred work experience, I go out, my car battery's dead. Oh, I love it when I get home after that and my identity's been stolen. I've had one of those weeks, if you can't tell. Um, My week has been like, oh, I love it when my kids got ear infections and then one of my other kids gashes another kid with glass and then just drama upon drama. It's just painful. Solomon says, don't waste the hard times. Now, um, I've told you this before, and for those of you who grew up in Florida, I always have to explain this. So in other parts of the world, there's these things called mountains. It's like a topographical move where God, like, put rock and sand up. Okay, now, mountains are a fascinating thing, and I love them, grew up by them. It's weird to me. I literally have no idea where I'm going. Every time I leave Fishhawk, I'm like, GPS, get me out of here quick. I don't know where I am. It's just like this haunted oak tree that's everywhere in Fishhawk. So I get out, GPS, find my way. The only thing I have are the radio towers. That's a sidebar. Okay, so mountains. Nothing grows on mountains. It's very sparse. Tree, shrub. When you get to the top of the mountain, the view is beautiful. I love it. I love being able to see for miles into the desert, for miles over forests. I love mountains. But, but all the growth happens, right, in the valley. You look down in the valley where all the water, all the snow trickles down to, sorry, snow is this substance when water gets really cold and flakes <laughs> down from the sky. Okay, so you, 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 you look in the valley where the snow and the water go down, and the growth happens there. There's lush trees. There's dense forest. And it's the same way with our lives. We all want the mountaintop, but not much grows on the mountaintop. All of a sudden, when the hard stuff of life hits, and Solomon's getting at this, when life gets hard, don't run from these moments, young buck. Embrace them, because this is where your character is going to get changed. And it's been true every step of the way in my life. When a hard time comes, all of my sin comes bubbling to the surface. When a difficult season is upon me, all of a sudden, I have to wrestle I have, to, I have to try, I have to exert strength, I have to press into God, I have to learn new ways to pray. And then all of a sudden, I come out on the other end, and God has made me a little bit stronger. And, and that is what Grandpa Solomon wants us to know today. Hey, I know it's fun to have the feasting. I know it's fun to have the laughter. I know it's fun to go see that movie. But don't waste the hard times, because the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. In the midst of those times is when your character will be developed. Some of you are in a hard time right now. Some of you are thinking in your heads, Pastor Ryan, I've been in a hard time for the last 10 years. God must really love you. Seriously. Seriously, God must really love you. I've done uh, marriage counseling for couples, and I've had them say like, 
wives come in or husbands come in. Why would God have me marry this person? Oh, man, my husband is A, B, C, X, Y, Z, every sin on the list. And I'm like, wow, he must really love you. I mean, don't say that to your own wife, but when you're a pastor, you can get away with a bunch of crazy talk. And you're like, what do you mean he must really love me? He must love you so much that he would see where you are sitting and he would look at your character and say, I'm going to give her the biggest thorn of her life and make her marry him. <laughs> you're like, no, God, please not be me. The single people, by the way, don't get it in here, okay? None of the single people, the single people are like, what? Marriage is going to make everything better. It doesn't make everything better. When you take two sinful people and you say live together, share everything, it doesn't make anything better. It, it makes it more difficult. And that's the, the big irony of the Christian church is that half of the married people are like, if I can only be single, and half of the single people are like, if I can only be married. I'm here to tell you that after ministering to 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40, 50, 60, 70, it's not your spouse that's going to ever save you. Your spouse is usually and oftentimes going to be the person that ministers to you in the painful ways, the one that knows how to push all of your buttons, right? Because when you're a kid, we've talked about this, your mom knows how to push your buttons, and you blow up, when you get married, God gives your spouse the whole algorithm of your life, and they play a Beethovenic symphony that just blows your gasket. God is loving you so well. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why is Solomon such a grump? Well, he's a grump because he's done it all. He's had the wives. In this conversation, as we've been drinking coffee with Grandpa Solomon, four of his 700 wives have come in to refill us and heat up the coffee again. And then he's going to shift gears. It, it, it's like he got lost. And he said, oh, wait, wait, where am I? Oh, yes. And one more thing, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, there's this weird thing in our culture about being offended. Like, nobody wants to offend anybody. And they have, um, like, safe places on college campuses. It's like, this is your safe space where nobody will say anything to offend you. And I get that. I don't think we should go around offending people on purpose. I don't think we should go around throwing slurs out that are derogatory and hurtful. But the fact that we're taking 20-year-olds and saying, here's a safe circle where no one's going to hurt you, it's like we're trying to nerf the emotions of the world. And, and I don't think it really prepares us for real life. Because anyone over the age of 10 has been slapped around by words. And it doesn't get less serious as you get older. When you're 10, you get hurt by words and you get bumped out of a little clique at your school. When you're 30, it happens and you get bumped out of a career. And, and what we need is something in the middle. We need what Solomon is telling us here. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. Now, I hope that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I am wise. That would be very terrifying for me. But, but I hope also that you look around in your life, not just here, but everywhere, and say, who are people who are wise in God that I can attach myself to? Who are people that are wise in God that I can say, I'm going to go be like them, be around them, because I know that they're going to speak truth into me. They're not going to be afraid to tell me the hard things. They're not going to be afraid to come out and say, man, you are blowing it. Because a fool will just sit there and laugh. A fool will be like, ah, it's okay, do whatever you want. But your wise friend will say, you're making a mistake. And just so we're clear, this never gets easier to receive. 
I've been on the receiving end of this so many times in my life, it's ridiculous. And, and I have like a scale that I work through. So if you are one of my close friends and you come up to me and you say, Ryan, this one's on you, you are blowing it. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm, first, I'm gonna deny it, right? None of us do this. I'm gonna be like, what do you mean I'm blowing it? Here's where you're blowing it. And, and believe me, you don't wanna try to get in like a word battle with me. I talk way faster than a 13-year-old girl in the Valley of California. I go, like Red Bull is just fused into here. So I will talk and talk and talk and talk until I win. And, and what happens is they'll say, no man, you're still being foolish. You are acting stupid. And I'll say, I'm acting stupid? Well, let me bring up all your sins. Because in my mind, I don't know why I do this, but I keep a grid of everyone that I meet. It just grids out, and I file through. I'm like, okay, you want to confront me? Here's my list for you, sucker heathen. Read your Bible as much as me. Yeah, do it, do it. But you can't, can't. No, I win. So then I go home. In this phase two, God says, you're an idiot. <laughs> and then I, I make excuses. God, no, they, they just don't see clearly. They don't understand the pressure and this and that. Then phase three, where I begin to finally realize, oh, man, I am an idiot. And then right before phase four, which is go back to the person and say, man, you were right. I, I probably bounced back from like the beginning of four to stage three at least 17 times. I'm like, oh, I should go back and tell them, nah, they don't need to know. They're worse than me. Nah, maybe, I, nah, yeah, oh, okay, you can find I go back, yeah, you're right, I was being an idiot. But those are the good friends. The friends who will come to you when your life is going the wrong direction and say, hey, this is going to hurt, but I love you. <gasps> Punch in the gut. We don't cultivate that in our culture anymore. We, we don't get those friends as much anymore because we have all these safe spaces. We have all these things where like if you say anything against somebody that you're automatically judgmental and unloving. This week I was called um, judgmental and unloving, I kid you not, at least a uh, hundred times, give or take. Because uh, one of my church families in the West Coast is going through some hard times and people have been calling me and calling me about it. And I felt so burdened because I was, I was literally on the phone or emailing for hours and hours and hours um, over this past week and weeks before. And so I finally just wrote something on the internet about it. That never goes well right? Let me just write 2,000 words about my opinion of you. Boop, post it, send it, nailed it. Um, I felt like I was gracious. I try to be gracious. I wrote grace on my arm here, mercy over here. So I'm like, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. I didn't write judgment, hatred, and beat their faces. <laughs> I, I want to sometimes. So I post it, and I get people saying, why would you do this? Why would you do this? And ultimately, I came back to this, because someone there needs a punch in the gut for Jesus. If no one's going to talk about the issue, we're going to shine a light on it and say, Jesus wants to bring healing and restoration here. Nobody likes it. It hurts, but it's for our well-being. And if you can gather friends like that, do it. If you find a friend who's not afraid to tell you that you're wrong in a kind and loving way, hold on to that friend like a precious, precious, precious gift. If all of your friends never disagree with anything you've, you've said in the past five years, dig a little deeper. If you need somebody, man, what I do is, is I look at people 10 years ahead of me. When it's talking about looking ahead, playing to the end game, I look ahead and I say, okay, well, who do I value and want to be like in 10 years? Who's ahead of me on the curve? Now, it used to be way different. I've told you that as, as I've aged, my perspective on what is good and healthy has aged. Now, when I was in my 20s, I thought, man, when I'm in my 30s, I'm going to be the one guy from high school that stays in shape. That's going to be me. And then all of a sudden I'm in my 30s and I'm like, who cares about abs? 
Like, I'm never walking through Publix. I never see some guy in his 50s It's just yoked. I'm like, oh, I want to be like you when I grow up. I don't do that. It's not bad to be in shape, but you want to know what I see? It's when I see somebody that's got kids that are teenagers, and I see them here walking around the lobby, or I see them walking around, or I see them somewhere else, and their kids love them. And the daughter goes up and says, Daddy, I love you. Can I go hang out with my friends? And he says, I love you too. And they still kiss each other on the cheek. And they're not ashamed. She's not ashamed and scared to do that. It's the, it's the dads that I see with their kids who in one moment can be playing the football, having the greatest time, and then they see their kid make a foolish choice, so they pull them aside and they lovingly and tenderly say, hey, um, this, this is not how we do this. This is not the way that God has shaped us. This is not who he saved us to be. I look at those dads and I watch you and I say, that's what I want. I want to be a man that's courageous like him. I want to have an integrity like him. I want to be brave and faith-filled like him. And I, I note these things. And the, these are the things that I'm looking for. I don't know what it's going to be when my kids are growing and leaving the house. I'm probably going to look and see which of you vacationed well. Like, man, how do you love your wives well? Because I, I've seen it enough now in 16 years of ministry where all of a sudden the teenagers grow up and the husband and the wife, they look at each other and they're like, who are you? Who are you? I don't know. I hate you. I hate you too. I mean, they don't say that. It's in the Hebrew. But it's the functional way that it plays out. I want to see people who launched children well. I want to see people who love their wives through to the finish line. I want to see people, I want to see men for me whose wives at the end of their lives say, man, every year my husband became more and more like Jesus. He just exuded love and kindness. He brought me to truth. When I was walking away from God, he was so encouraging yet so kind at the same time, yet so challenging. Man, I hope that my wife could see that in me. And I look to you men, for me personally, who are doing that, who are striving toward that, although, albeit imperfectly, because that's who we still are. Verse 5, or no, sorry, verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. I love the word fools in this book so much because it reminds me, and I know this might be a bad word, but like, it's like Paul Solomon, Grandpa Solomon is just saying, like, hey, these guys are morons. And they're just going to laugh at you the whole way home, and they're not going to tell you what's really going on. But I'm your grandpa, and I want you to know the reality of life. And at this point in the story, I always pictured, like, what would it be like to be Solomon because you're King David's grandson. So King David has like handed down all your heirlooms, and this is just my weird brain. So like at this point, Solomon walks us from the plastic-covered couch into his office where he's got this massive moose-skin chair to sit in. And, and Solomon, because he's like at this point super, super old, he's got that weak, tiny bladder. He's part of the itty-bitty bladder committee, the IBBC. So he's going to the bathroom, going to the bathroom, and we're just sitting there thinking, no, my grandpa is so cool. We're looking on his desk, fiddling around. You know, this is before cameras, but if there were cameras, there's like a picture of David with Goliath's head. That's how I picture it went down. He's like, yeah, did it. Check me out, God. And there's Solomon, all his heirlooms, his gold. And he says, hey, I'm going to give you one last thing, young buck. The fools, they'll just laugh when your life is going up in flames. That's what this is saying. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, as your life is catching on fire, the fools are going to laugh. We need a friend. We need someone who's going to say, you're on fire. Right now, your life is on fire. Stop. Whatever you're doing, stop. And some of us in here are thinking, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean by on fire? So I'm just going to run through this. Like, we know, we know when our life is smoldering. 
Our life begins to smolder. It's that little beginning of a fire, a little puff of smoke when we're just doing something slightly wrong. There's an addiction. There's a besetting sin. There's something that's got a grip in us. And we think, it's not that bad. It's just an addiction to this. It's just, I, I love going here. I love doing this. I love drinking too much of that. And all of a sudden, as we're doing this, our life begins smoldering. And, and please don't hear me. I'm not saying, like, don't drink beer. All wine in Jesus' time was non-alcoholic. No, that's not what I'm saying. But, but what I am saying is that if you've got a problem of sin that's festering, that's owned you in your life, and none of your friends are screaming, dude, you're on fire, then you need to back up and find a new group of friends. If you're addicted to, to the, the wrong kind of clubs, if you have a secret addiction to pornography, if your eye's been wandering, you your life has been smoldering and catching on fire. Some of you see this clear as crystal in your marriages. Some of you are like, yeah, when we first started, man, we were in love. We loved going out. I loved hugging her. I loved kissing her. I haven't, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I, how did I get here? I, I used to love her, and now I haven't kissed her on the cheek in, in five months. Here's, it starts as a smolder and a little smoke and then a little fire. And then all of a sudden the distance begins to grow until your marriage is going up in flames and you know the saddest part of it all? People usually don't realize that their life has been on fire until they're burnt to a crisp. They've got no eyebrows or arm hairs burned off. They're like, how did I get here? Dude, you were on fire back there. Solomon, Grandpa Solomon says, find the people who aren't just going to laugh at it. Find the people who aren't just going to look at your life, whether it's an addiction or a sin, and just say, hey, I'm doing it, you do it, it's okay. Find the people who will look at you and say, I think you smell like you're burning. Recently, we had a light go out outside, and, um, and I'm not super handy. I'm, like, moderate handy. I think I'm more handy than I am because I went to college twice. Um, I mean, in a good way. Like, I finished two degrees. I didn't, like, drop out. Well, never mind. Okay, different story. So I was fixing this light bulb, and it's some weird sort of, like, high-pressure sodium nitrate explosion bulb. Uh, and I didn't know this. I'm like, go to Home Depot. How hard can it be? Plug in, plug out. I've done this in my home 10,000 times. Well, I'll tell you how hard it is. I smelled like burning flesh for about three and a half days. Because my finger connected a weird circuit, and the electricity went through here. It looked at my arm hair and said, challenge accepted, poof. And it turned my heart into like a NASCAR speedway. I was like, and I walked in literally like burned, singe. And someone was here. I was like, hey, I think I just got electrocuted. Like, are you okay? I think so. Yeah, man, you want to sit down? I don't know. But, but it's our life. Because we, we go through these choices, we go through these things, and we think, we think that it's okay to just harbor a little bit of fire in my life. And Solomon is saying, no man, if the thorns are crackling, if the fire is starting, put it out then. Put out the fire then before it turns into a raging forest fire that destroys you, that burns off your eyebrows, you have nothing left, you're parched, there's no water, you're dead. Whether it's in your marriage or with your kids or in your workplace, when you see the smolder happening, you should have people around you that can say, hey, hey, hey something smells like barbecue and it's not steak. Because if we don't have that, what happens is we're walking around on fire. And the weirdest thing has happened since I moved to um, the South. Do you guys consider this the South? It's like the South-ish, right? Because you have like enough people from Tennessee that it's real tenacity down here. But then you have people that like are from Missouri, which I know that's not the right way to say it. It's like Missouri. I don't know what that is. I don't get it. But, uh, but you have enough of that southern influence. Like if Dallas is the belt buckle of the Bible belt, we're like the last loop on a diet that you get to like put in, right, on the Bible belt. That's us. 
So it's still weird. But I've met a lot of people who, who are like, hey, man, I love God. I love Jesus, but pff, I'm never going into a church again. That's been a lot of the people who have come here. They're like, oh, man, we love coming to your church. It doesn't feel like a church. I'm like, thank you? I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, we've got shady people here. Yeah, for sure. Like, if you have a purse, it should be between your legs. Like, we've got shady people. They just found Jesus. Jesus just found them. Like, be, be weary. But I've had a lot of that conversation where people say, I just love Jesus, love God, don't want anything to do with the church. And here's why I think it is. I think it's because historically for the last 20, 30 years, the church has been a group of people who look like we just stumbled out of an ICU burn unit and we're pretending we're not on fire. Oh, my marriage is fine. Everything is great. Everything is great. Everything is great. Everything is great. I'm not on fire. I'm not on fire. And it's almost like two-faced, like from this side, their suit's still intact, and they turn around, they just have burnt flesh, no eyebrow, half a mustache. And I'm like, I think you're burning, man. No, I feel great. My life is okay. I'm really good. Job is great. Kids are great. Wife hates me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> like, no, no, you're really, something's messed up. And people come in, they see that. And they see, ah, this God, he, he loved people. Like Jesus drew in sinful people. Jesus drew in the people that the church has this natural repellent for. You know who we need in here? I would love it if this place got so shady that you actually had to guard your purse. I would love it. I mean, we'd have celebrate recovery on Thursday so they would steal your purse on Sunday, give it back on Thursday after they repented. Like, I'm, I'm for this. I'm for guys being able to have circles of other guy friends like we're doing with Band of Brothers that can come to the meeting and say, hey, guys, um, we've been talking about life plans and marriages and this and that. Oh, my gosh, I'm just addicted to this sin. Boom, laid it out. And the guys don't go, oh, ew, yuck. Oh, my gosh, you're on fire. Not like me. I'm so clean and pretty. Not. We've all been burned. And it's only by the grace of God and Jesus that we can finally get healed. And to be honest, like, I feel like that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm not like this shining example. I'm not going to put myself up on the pedestal of a super pastor. We've been doing that for far too long as churches. One of our members this morning just reminded me to keep me down, to keep my ego contained. She said, you put on your pants the same way as the rest of us. And I said, no, I don't. I hover and the Shekinah glory puts my pants on for me every morning. How do you put on your pants? <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't put on her pants the same way as me. Yeah. I think it'd be better if we could finally get to the place where we could say, man, my life, I got burnt to a crisp here. Oh, I got charred over here. But God is healing me. I've been able to come to the cross. And at the cross of Christ, it's where, where Jesus literally took the ultimate fire out of our trajectory and said, hey, this is where life was heading for you, but I died and I'm making a way so that I've absorbed all of the punishment for your sin. So now you don't have to pretend that you don't have any. Now we don't have to be like the walking dead and say, I'm not burnt at all. I'm totally okay. When in the meantime, we're crisping and hurting and in pain. It is okay to say, man, I am hurting and in pain. It is okay at the chapel to not be okay but it is not okay to stay not okay. We want you to come here when you're hurting, broken, and burnt, not so that we can just sit around and collectively say, ooh, we smell like a giant barbecue, but so that we can say, hey, let's all bring healing to each other. Let's all have an openness and authenticity that makes it so we can share each other's sins and not feel judged and run out. Man, 
that I would give for a friend like that. So, so here's the catcher. So right now you're like, okay, um, think about when I die, plan for the end. I want to be really, really old. My wife's going to still love me. My husband's going to still love me. My kids are going to be great. Love Jesus. And um, don't be on fire. I think I might be on fire. Some of you right now are like, I'm on fire. Some of you know my marriage is on fire, my work's on fire, my integrity is on fire, my addiction's on fire. Some of you already know, and you have the smell of smoke coming up, and you're like, what do I do? How do I, how do I get not on fire? This is where it's Grandpa Solomon. He, he's just coming in, and he, he wants us to know. Look, look around for the wise among you. If you don't have a wise person near you, you're going to burn to the ground. If you don't have a circle who will punch you in the gut and rebuke you, you're going to burn to the ground. If all you think about is, how can I have the next best time of my life? You're going to get caught on fire. Good times are good. Enjoy the good times. Solomon has said in this book a number of times, when the good times roll, enjoy it. Because the mountaintops don't last forever. Eventually, life takes us back to the valleys. So what do you do? How do you, how do you get not on fire? I think the first thing you have to do is recognize that you've burnt. You've burnt part of your life. You've allowed addiction. You've allowed sin to creep in. You've allowed anger to take hold. And you've passed it off by saying, I'm not as bad as that person. I don't sin as much as that person. And you've let the fire creep up your own. So first you have to acknowledge, man, I'm a, I'm a burn victim. And this is a burn unit. And God is the great healer. And then when you finally get the eyebrows off fire and your arm hair grows back a little bit on one side, you can say, how can I help somebody from that perspective? Not from the perspective that says, I've never been burned, be like me. But from the person that says, hey, I've been where you are. My face is still healing. My arm hair is still growing back. I've been where you are. Can I walk with you? Can we get a cup of coffee together? Can we talk life and real stuff? This is what we need because in the midst of those conversations, we get to Jesus and we say, hey, man, isn't it good that that song, Amazing Grace, you saved a wretch like me? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> in my post um, this week, on my blog, it's, it's been crazy, like I told you. Um, and I, I don't even, like someone's going to listen to it from Glenn Kirk and probably get mad at me, I don't know. But I, I just wrote, because people are like, Ryan, you're prideful. And I tell them, you have no idea. I'm way more big-headed, egotistical than you know. And that's the best thing you can do when someone accuses you of sin. You just take the bullet right out of their gun. They're like, I'm going to shoot you with this bullet of how sinful you are. And as they're drawing the gun, I say, girl, you have no idea. I've been burnt more than you know. My sin has consumed me. And I wrote my post, isn't it great that Jesus would save a wretch like me? Now, if that's the stance how much easier does it become? Because if, if I can come to you and say, whoa, man, I've been burned. I went down. I caught on fire the same way you're catching on fire. I don't want to see that happen to, to your life, to your work, to your marriage, to your kids. Let's just go grab coffee. And it's, it's no longer someone trying to fix someone else. It's two burn unit victims saying, Jesus is going to get us through this. He's really going to do it. He, he does what he says. He, he heals us and restores us. Yeah, man, isn't that the best? Now we get to go tell other people about it rather than the church being a place where we all are crispy and eyebrowless. Our mustaches have been seared and we just 
go around telling people, come be like me, come be like me. Can you imagine how crazy that looks to somebody from the outside? Come be like me. You were crazy. That's what I told people when I first came to Christ. I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. I didn't want to be anything like the people where I first started going to church. I, uh, I would go to church, and this is, don't judge me, you guys, this was back in the 90s, cargo shorts, polo shirts, backwards hat, frosted tips. Nailed it. Favorite band at the time, Backstreet Boys. Instinct people, hate on, haters. I would roll into churches, and, and the church I was going to, oh my gosh, I mean, they were, we're talking three-piece suits, the guys had the little metal things on their jackets. That's how much I dress up, you could tell. What are they called again? I don't know. Republican pins? I don't know. <laughs> don't, don't even need, nobody email me about that. I'm up to my ears of politics, nobody. And, uh, and I remember I didn't like the Bible in the front of this church because it had the Apocrypha. And I was new to church, you guys. So if you grew up Catholic, I, I wasn't hating on Catholics. I just didn't get it. So we had this Catholic Bible. And I thought, man, why do we have a Catholic Bible at the front of a Protestant church? Don't we protest the Catholics? And this was me, young, brash. So I went up there one Sunday. And it's in the very front of the church, right on the communion table. And, um, and FYI, like my grandparents grew up Catholic. My grandfather was a Jesuit went to Jesuit school, Jesuit priest. So I, I get that. But I went up and I was like, oh, this is so bad. I had written connection cards every week for like 700 weeks. Like, why is this Bible in the front? Why is this Bible? I was a bad kid. And then finally one day I went up to the front, tipped off my hat, me and my best rebellious friend. We got down on our knees and we crossed ourselves. Now, A, God could have and should have probably just taken me out right then and there, right? Like, that's pretty bad. But he didn't. He sent an angry Irishman with hands the size of grizzly bear paws grabbed me and my friend, and mind you, I'm already at this point six foot four, probably weighed more than I weigh now, like 250 pounds, and this Irish grizzly bear just, and I thought I was off the ground, I was probably just standing up, but it felt like I was floating, and he just took us right down the center aisle, like walk of shame, dragging my toes, burning my nails off, he took us to the lobby, what are you doing, and I was like, I'm standing up for truth, this punk kid, right, he, he was kind enough, and graceful enough after he drugged me out of there like a hooligan to say, what do you think this tells people who are new today about Jesus? And I went through all my steps. It tells me that you're wrong and I'm right. We should have gotten rid of that Bible. Blah. Step two, God whispering from the heavens, you're an idiot. Step three, no, he's worse than me. He grabbed me and polar bared me out. Step four, I probably was wrong. Back to step three. I'm not going to admit it. Up to step four, I probably, nope, step three, four, three, four. Okay, fine. I was wrong. I'm sorry. It took him to, to drag me out. Who's dragging you out when you're lighting something on fire? Who's going to come into your marriage? Who are you going to let into your marriage so that they can actually see? Because if our culture has given us anything, it's a tremendous ability to hide. Our culture has given us smaller and smaller front porches and bigger and bigger backyards. And if our backyard didn't keep us isolated enough in Florida, they screen them in. And if the screen's not enough, I just learned you could buy something called Florida glass, which is like impenetrable, bulletproof screening. And we never have to see anybody ever. <laughs> I had a secret agent come to my door the other day. That's what I call it anyways. Show my wife his badge. My wife's been watching this show called The Good Wife. So she's paranoid of all government agencies. So she literally like, badge, boop. She goes, someone's at the door with the badge. It's you, right? <laughs> and I was like, 
Why's it got to be me? It's totally Silas. <laughs> Went to the door. He was doing a background, check on, a background check on somebody. I've never lived in a military area like this, so apparently it's like legit. For sure, the whole time, I'm like, this guy's going to kill me. This guy's going to kill me in broad daylight and get away. This guy's CIA. I know it. I feel it in my good wife's blood. So I'm out there, you know, my gun behind my back. I didn't do that, you guys. <laughs> I don't, he's asking about my neighbor. What do you know about your neighbor? I'm like, uh, which one? The one that lives right there. Uh, he's bald. That's literally my first move. Uh, I mean, you probably knew that, right? If he's applying for a job, you've seen. <laughs> uh, he's got a kid, maybe two. He fishes sometimes. And he just want to know if he lived there. Some security clearance stuff, you know. People know that I'm on the ends with this type of thing. But I realized, oh, my gosh, I don't even know my neighbor. Like, I know some of my neighbors. By the way, I'm really pumped. My neighbors love me so much, they mowed half my lawn yesterday for me, like the half that's attached to theirs. Good neighbors. Kudos to you guys. Um, and now if I can only get my other neighbor to mow that half, I'm set for life. <laughs> and just go. I'm like, oh, thanks, guys. The job's tough, you know. <laughs> but that neighbor over there, I'm, I don't know that guy. I answered questions, and then I, I sat down. I'm like, oh, I don't, even, I don't even know my neighbor. And I'm talking about making myself available, knowing people. Who do you know? Open your life up. Open your life up so that you can have coffee conversations with Jesus. Because Foundation Coffee is open on Sundays now. After I clean all this stuff up and pick up the signs that are all about, I go over to Foundation and I sit there and I talk with my barista because it's super refreshing to talk to somebody who doesn't care that I'm a pastor. I just sit there and I'm like, ah. Where will you be? Who will you talk to? Who will you open your life to when the time comes? We're on fire, fam. Let's stop pretending like we're not. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. God, I've been on fire so many times. There's people in this room that are on fire. Their marriages are on fire. Their children are on fire. Their parenting's on fire. And you just want to bring healing. Reach into our lives. Surround us with wise friends and not foolish friends. Surround us with people who will speak truth with grace and tenderness and kindness and not beat us up with it. God, I pray. God, for some reason, I'm weighed down by the thought that there are people in here who, who already know that their marriages have been a place where one person laughs and the other cries, where one person makes fun and the other person is silent, where one person is angry and the other person is scared. God, put out the fire. Help us to be honest with where we are. We don't have to pretend because you've taken our sin upon the cross. We don't have to pretend because you're the great healer. We don't have to pretend and we have no right to bear down in anger and judgment upon another because we are all burn unit victims. So be that for us. Inspire us to be authentic in Jesus' name. Amen.